Welcome to the online ministry of Pacific Beach United Methodist Church, located in beautiful San Diego, California. Pacific Beach UMC is a member of the Reconciling Ministries Network and welcomes persons of all ages and backgrounds for worship, study, and service opportunities. More information can be found on our website at pbumc.org. May you be enriched by the hearing of these words, and may you receive and enjoy God's blessing. This morning our scripture is from Isaiah 53, 1-3. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should even desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity, and as one from whom others hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him of no account. Second scripture is from Corinthians 2, verse 3, 1 through 8, or 18, sorry, 318. And all of us with unveiled faces seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. 1 Corinthians, verse 15, 48 through 49. As one of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as one of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the one of dust, we will also bear the image of one of heaven. Thank you, Christina. Um, I always get a little choked up at that anthem. <coughs> Sorry. It's about deliverance, and I chose it so that and we'll move into our talk today about seeking the face of Jesus. When, he need, when we need him the most, we have to find his face. And where do we find that face of Jesus? So I'm not a theologian. I am an art historian. So today, you're going to get a lot of art. <laughs> okay, so bear with me. Um, it's going to be quite a ride because we are going to look at the last 2,000 years of Christian art in 25 minutes. <laughs> so um, our first text from the Old Testament today, verse 2 of Isaiah 53. Isaiah is prophesying about the coming of the Messiah and describing him back in Isaiah's time. Verse 2 says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In other words, we don't know what Jesus looked like. He wasn't extraordinarily handsome because that would distract from his message. He didn't come in majesty because that would have distracted from his message. So we don't know. So for the last 2,000 years, artists have tried to create God in our image the best that they could to get a handle on what God looked like. 
Let's see here. Hello. Oh, there we go. Oops, sorry. I am new at this technology, I guess. Yep, yep, yep. There's where we want to start. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> good Lord. <laughs> he is good, yes. Um, <laughs> this is the very first image we've ever seen of Jesus, the first attempt at making Jesus. It is from the second century catacomb painting. This is when Christians are being persecuted and looking for deliverance. That's why we sang this anthem today, to come into the very first image of Jesus as the good shepherd, the deliverer. Now in the catacombs where people were buried, the Roman soldiers wouldn't go because they were superstitious. So it was the perfect place for Christians to meet and gather while being persecuted under 10 different emperors, the worst of them Diocletian. In the catacombs, we have a theme over and over and over again in the paintings, and it's always of deliverance. Daniel in the lion's den, Noah and the ark, the three young Hebrew uh, children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and of course, Jesus as the good shepherd delivering uh, the lost sheep that we read in the Gospel of Luke. By the year 313, the Roman Empire decides to have an edict of toleration so people could worship in open any god they wanted. By 380, Constantine makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire covered the whole known world. So all of a sudden, that's all Christian. Well, we can't have this <laughs> as the god of the Roman Empire, they're saying. This is not appropriate. It's just a little... Uh, a little shepherd carrying his sheep. So we have what I call the imperialization of Christ. We see here in a Byzantine mosaic that Christ is still the good shepherd, young, beardless um, shepherd, but he's got a purple robe. We're gonna start imperializing. He needs to be a little bit more impressive if he's gonna be the God of the Roman Empire. And that's what we see here. Eventually he's taken from the earth and put into heaven. And you see this globe he's sitting on? That's not the globe of the world. We still believe the world's flat at this time. That is the spheres of the heavens. That is the universe. He is God of the universe, still a young, beardless Jesus, but in his robes there. Well, with the influence of the Middle East, place ancient, ancient country, uh, civilizations like Persia and the Mesopotamia, there the beard was the sign of wisdom and the sign of authority. So that was assimilated into Christian art. And we see now Jesus is older. He has a beard. And then the final imperialization is he is on a throne surrounded by angels, a middle-aged man with a beard, and he is emperor, and he is far removed from us because he is the ruler of the universe and the god of the Roman Empire. This is all from a Byzantine churches when the Roman Empire has split. The left has fallen, or the, the Western part has fallen into disarray with the barbarians conquering Rome, and it goes into the Dark Ages. Now in the Dark Ages, we have this church, Tympanum, from the Church of Aton in France, and 
it shows the theology of the time. Nature was evil. You didn't go out into the forest. It's full of demons and nature's evil. We don't like it. And there are few people who are going to make it into heaven. And most likely it's not you. <laughs> and we see this when you get a close-up as Jesus as a judge, the last judge of the good and the righteous. Well, here on the left-hand side, we see angels and demons holding on to weighing the souls of these little people. And we can see them being thrown into the mouth of hell and demons capturing them. And it's hard to see, but there's even one down there cowering in the robes of the angel. This is what you saw on Sunday morning when you went to church. And it drove a lot of people away at the time. It was a dark time, why we call it the dark ages. Theology was scary at this time. Then comes, of course, St. Francis. We like St. Francis. He said, the world around us is not evil. It was co-created with us, and therefore it is good. God is in everything. Nature's wonderful. Get out there and enjoy it. And they did. And eventually, human beings started looking at the world, studying the world, and that's when we get the Renaissance, renaissance, rebirth of knowledge and passion, astronomy, biology, all kinds of things they were looking at, okay? And this will change Western art forever. With the Renaissance, of course, we have this very famous artist, Leonardo da Vinci, who brought this whole idea of um, creating a three-dimensional image on a two-dimensional service that develops in the Renaissance. Linear perspective is developed by an artist called Brunelleschi, and Leonardo creates it here to create the illusion of a full room of the Last Supper, that you're actually standing in the room with Jesus and his disciples during the Last Supper. Notice everything goes back into a depth that is created by linear perspective. These lines you don't see visually, but you see them subconsciously. The lines of the walls and the ceilings all converge on a dot called the vanishing point on the horizon line. And Leonardo very carefully puts that vanishing point right behind Jesus' head so that the focus of the painting is on Jesus. He's not only smack in the middle, but this vanishing point is right behind his head, and so your eyes go there. This is his um, Salvador Mundi his uh, savior of the world painting. This painting came up for sale in 2017, and it shows this whole idea of Renaissance chiaroscuro, light and dark, sfumato, a subtle um, smoky atmosphere developed by Leonardo da Vinci that creates volume and depth. We've moved away from the Byzantine flat Jesus to a three-dimensional, but notice it's still not realistic. It is idealized and it's ethereal. He's looking at you as a real person, but there is that, that smoky atmosphere that creates something ethereal about him that was developed by Leonardo. That's quite something. This painting was, by the way, the most expensive painting ever sold at auction. It sold for $450 million to a member of the Saudi royal family. Now, we have, at this time, Martin Luther 
coming to the forefront and the Protestant Reformation. Luther's saying, I've been looking at things that I've been disappointed in in the Catholic Church. There are selling of indulgences which aren't right. So I'm going to start looking at some of the church doctrine and see what's biblical and what's not. And he found 95 of them that he nailed to his church door at Wittenberg, Germany, saying these are wrong. The Catholic Church did come and meet with the Protestants to look at these, and they agreed in 10 of them. They said, okay, we come together with you with 10 of these. These are not biblical. But the other 85, no. We're not only going to reject that, we're going to push them. So we find a counter-reformation at this time to get people back into the church because the Protestants were leaving by droves because these 95 theses by Martin Luther were disseminated by the Gutenberg press all over Europe, and it really spread his theology. So here we have a man called uh, Peter Paul Rubens, who is the biggest counter-reformation artist that the Catholic Church used. The focus now is not on Jesus, but on the Mother Mary, because the three big things that Luther really pushed against was the primacy of the Pope. He says one man does not have direct contact with God only, that we all have contact with God. We all have access to God. We don't have to go through this man. There's nothing in the Bible about a Pope. Other two things were the veneration of the Virgin Mary and the veneration of saints saying we don't have to go through the Virgin Mary or through saints to access God. We can access him directly. And this veneration of them is distracting from Jesus. And the Catholic Church is saying, no, we're going to push her. Now, the Catholic Church here with the Virgin Mary and the baby Jesus, we can see a big change. We have gone from a little shepherd to an imperial Christ, to a judgmental Christ, and now he's a baby, right? In fact, he's a little white baby with blonde hair. <laughs> this takes away that focus from Jesus in his ministry and actually puts it on the Virgin Mary. Now, the Mary is the essence of compassion. She is the essence of kindness and love, and she is the opposite of the condemning judge of the Middle Ages. So this was a way to get people back into the church. It makes Jesus more user-friendly and not as threatening, right? He also creates, um, Rubens, a grand narrative in religious scenes. A lot of people, a lot of saints, a lot of times angels coming and going. And of course, Mary there is prominent in her red dress when everybody else is dressed in brown. And we have Jesus again as a Rubenesque baby, and this is where the term Rubenesque comes from, a little pudgy, and with blonde hair. So this is the counter-reformation. This is the other side of the Protestant Reformation. If we go to the north here, we will see, yeah, oops, sorry. Not moving the way I want it to move. Oh, sorry, go back one. Yeah. 
We need to go back one. Technology, don't you love it? It's supposed to make things easier. Yes. We're going to Rembrandt. <laughs> Rembrandt is the major Protestant um, Dutch painter who was probably the most influential artist in Western history. And the thing about Rembrandt portraits is that he sees into the soul of the sitter. You'll find that the background is quite easily sketched and quickly sketched, but the focus and the detail is on the face and in the eyes of the sitter. And for the first time, we really see Jesus becoming a real person, a real man. And he's emphasizing, of course, his um, human side. The mood of his portraits is meditative and captures Christ's humanity. He's fully depicted as a real human at this time. This broke with the conventional. Can we go to Rembrandt? <laughs> I mean... Oh, sorry. Okay. I like the old-fashioned clickers that used to go through, you know? Well, okay. So anyways, he breaks the conventional ways of how Jesus is visualized. It emphasizes his humanity. There is empathy and grace in Rembrandt's portraits. And there is a fullness of nature that is here. He even wanted it to be ethnically accurate. So he went to a local synagogue in his uh, neighborhood and got a rabbinical student to come and sit for his portrait of Jesus so that he would have a man, here he is, thank you, here he is, a man of about 33 who is Jewish and is a real person. So here we see this incredible image of a real person. He's not idealized, he's not ethereal, like we see with Leonardo da Vinci. He is a real man. This broke the conventional ways of how Jesus was visualized. Rembrandt tried to focus attention on our personal faith in the Almighty. He refined the grand religious narratives and into a quiet, serene, and empathetic human moment. Can I touch it? There we go. Okay, 18th century. I'm, I'm zipping through the 2,000 years here. <laughs> we have Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf here on the left-hand side. He was a young noble in the 18th century who was going to study law. And he went to Dresden to study law as a young man. He was a devout Protestant and Christian, and he came one day to a museum there while he was going to school and wanted to see the art. And he came up upon this portrait here of Christ on his way to the cross. He's been beaten and tortured, and this image, you can see Christ looks right out at you. This captured the Count Zizendorf very powerfully. He sat in front of this painting for hours. 
Eventually, a curator came and said, why are you standing or sitting in front of this painting for all, for all day long looking at this? And he said, and I quote, I have loved him for so long, but I have never actually done anything for him. From now on, I will do whatever he leads me to do. And later on, he says, the Holy Spirit that day fell upon him through this painting. It moved him to change his life through this image of Jesus looking into his soul and saying, what can you do? Excuse me, what you can do for me. He went on to become a German religious and social reformer. He became a bishop in the Moravian church. He was a pioneer of 18th century Protestant movement, and he played a role in Protestant missionary movement. And he was very critical of slavery. He and his followers went to the Dutch colonies, to the slave camps, and ministered to the slaves. 19th century happens, it's mostly landscape painting, impressionism and realism and a lot of historical painting. So the church really takes a back seat in terms of being a patron of the arts. But when we get to the, ninth, when we get to the 20th century, um, by 1940, we have this picture. Now, how many people here recognize this painting? That does not surprise me. It is the most reproduced image of Jesus in history. Worldwide, it has been reproduced half a billion times. From everything from posters to bookmarks, even refrigerator magnets. This hung in my father's office at his church. And when I grew up, this is what I thought Jesus looked like. Now, it's by a man named uh, Warner Salzman and well, it's right before we go into World War II. This is 1940 when he makes this, and it becomes very popular. Is it Rembrandt? No. Um, is it a great painting? It's okay. Some scholars call it the sappy Jesus. Some scholars call it the androgynous Jesus. But because of his long hair and blonde highlights, I just call him surfer Jesus. <laughs> now, out of one of the most unexpected uh, art movements ever comes the surrealistic <clears throat> images by Salvador Dali, last person you would think of doing religious, but he was deeply um, profound in his Catholic faith and brought up in it. And towards the end of his life, he really started <clears throat> looking at the world around him. Dali sought to merge the science of the atomic world. This is 1950s when we had the bomb and all that. And he wanted to merge this idea of science and faith. And he had found a mystical meaning for life in the fact that things on an atomic level are made up of energy. This is nuclear science, right? Everything, even the solid, most solid thing is made up of nuclear science, which is energy. Everything we have, the wood you're sitting on, is made up of energy. And in this mystical idea of combining that energy is just like the God spirit. He breathed life into creation. And that energy is God's spirit. Therefore, his faith and this fascination 
with nuclear and quantum physics is being merged in his art. We see here with his Last Supper, the solids of the wall of the building are dematerializing, showing that there's energy there, that God's spirit is everywhere. Above, we see this image of the crucifixion, which is foreshadowing what's to come. And notice that Jesus now has lost his beard. We've got this big arc of history, and here he is back, a young man, beardless, pointing up to God and this very mystical place. Surrealism delves into the deep subconscious and the interworld of the artist, below reality, into the world of dreams and illusions. And here, Dali mixes this theory of his, this nuclear faith, as he calls it, um, quite powerfully. In his Corpus Hypercubus painting here, Dali's exploration of merging faith and science in a mystical, in a mystical fourth dimension is very evident. Christ's body has his hands going like this. You can feel the pain of the nails, yet he is suspended above this cubistic cross, which is suspended in this eternal landscape with Mary, his mother, at the bottom looking up at him. Very powerful images. And my favorite, my favorite, I think, crucifixion ever is the one that he did called Dolly, um, called Christ of, G of St. John on the cross. Can we move that? Is it frozen again? Frozen again. Okay. Well, anyways, in this other, <laughs> in this last image I was going to show you, we have Christ seen from God's point of view. It's looking down at the cross as he's suspended in space, and it forces the viewer to look at God and the crucifixion from God's point of view. It makes you empathize with God the Father, looking down at his son on the cross whole new perspective. It's never been done before, yet Dolly captures this moment in a very powerful and meaningful way, and I think it's one of the most beautiful crucifixions ever painted. Hopefully we can get it up here. Okay, we're going to go on. Okay. Um, that will take us to our New Testament reading today, 2 Corinthians all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as through reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from, degree, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord and the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians we have, as one of dust, so are those of dust. As one of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as, we, just as we have borne the image of the one of dust, being human, we also bear the image of the one of heaven. So we ask, how do we see the face of Jesus? Where do we see the face of Jesus? For 2,000 years, we have tried to create the face of Jesus. And so I ask myself, where do I see the face of Jesus in the world today? And I wish I had images here. <laughs> um, 
One, I see the face of Jesus on those who dedicate their lives to justice and compassion as taught in the works of Jesus, image of Martin Luther King. I see the face of Jesus in those who dedicate their lives to world peace and finding harmony across religious traditions, image of the Dalai Lama. I see the face of Jesus of the, on those who reach people who are in our community who need listening ear, a sympathetic word in times of sickness and loneliness. Images of our Stephen's ministers. I see the face of Jesus here at PBUMC on Wednesday night in the volunteers who feed and care for our neighbors who are experiencing homelessness. And I see the face of Jesus on those who reach out to people and communities who are marginalized, rejected, not only by society, but by our church. We find that they are offering them sanctuary, a place of love where you accept, where you are accepted just as God accepts us. And we do that with our image of, oh, here we have our Stephen ministers, but also those of us who marched in the gay pride parade, reaching out to people here who, who are really hurting sometimes and need a place of sanctuary. And finally, I see the face of Jesus on those who minister through the arts, through music, and who preach the gospel every morning on Sunday morning from the pulpit. Sure. Here it is. Powerful image. Looking at the crucifixion from God's point of view. Powerful. Art can convey a major emotion. And here we do empathize with God the Father. Rather than looking up and feeling sorry for ourselves and Christ, we are now forced to also look at his Father and how he felt about what he saw. Now in the last image, there is Martin Luther, Dalai Lama, our Stephen ministers, wonderful people from Wednesday night, and of course, our leaders here at church. Finally, in this last slide, um, is Rembrandt's painting of St. Francis of Assisi. He used his young son Titus to um, capture the innocence and childlike faith of St. Francis. And I love this quote from St. Francis. I encourage you to go forth and preach the gospel every day using words if you have to. In other words, actions speak louder than words. Live the gospel rather than just preaching the gospel. This is where we see the face of Jesus today in the person who's sitting next to you. This is where we see we are the face of Jesus to the world. We're his hands, his feet, his eyes, everything. So I leave you with this question today. What portrait of Jesus is your life painting for the world to see? Amen. 
Tim, I want to say, I think on behalf of all of us, we see the face of Jesus in you. You got me crying now, too. We're all just going to cry today. Um, and, and after hearing your words and your heart to sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, takes on a whole new meaning. So we are looking up and truly gazing at one another as we, as we share that song. So thank you. Thank you. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. You can clap again. <laughs> yeah. So we continue now in this time of prayer and just want to say we are grateful to have Marsha back here with us today. I want to lift up uh, Carol, Beth's mom, who is in the uh, likely the final days of her life. So pray for Carol and Beth and uh, Zach is is here with us with the youth and and their family, um, as well as our friend Beth in South Carolina, who is also on hospice care. So ask that you would keep those folks in your prayers. Let us go to God together in prayer. Loving and grace-filled God, redeeming God, we come to you in this time of prayer with the fullness of our hopes and sorrows and needs. We are ones who strive, ones who struggle, ones who stumble, ones who care deeply about this world and all that is in it. We live in awe of the staggering beauty of this earth and the preciousness of this gift of life. We also live in the confusion and uncertainty that comes with being human and doing our best in a world that sometimes feels fragile and unpredictable. Receive us as we are. Shape us day by day into a community that more fully honors and serves you. Illumine our individual and shared paths that we might become more and more the people and communities that you intend for us to be. God of endless compassion, our hearts break with each incident of violence that wounds, diminishes, or destroys life. We grieve the ongoing war against Ukraine. We cry out in protest against the violence that exploded through a daycare center in Thailand and tore through the streets of Las Vegas. We are weighed down, sometimes deeply discouraged, by the pain and gravity of it all. Yet we remember that you created us for something more, that you call us to a way of life that is kind and gentle and life-giving. We are grateful that you have invited us into your holy endeavor of overcoming all forms of evil, hate, and violence with love. Ground us in your shalom and give us the courage and vision to align our lives with your divine purpose and the patterns of your kingdom as it is yet becoming. On this Laity Sunday, we thank you for the ministry of all Christians. We celebrate the fact that the ministry of your lay people extends farther and wider and deeper than any other. We thank you for the ministry of the laity that happens within church walls and for that which happens in homes, neighborhoods, places of work, local communities, and around the world. 
We give you thanks for the ministry of the laity that happens through song and silence, written and spoken word, action and deed. Empower each one of us in the ministry to which you call us to embody the love of Christ in this world. Help us to reflect your divine image in which we have been created in a way that brings help, healing, restoration to the people and places around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.